Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, listener mail. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and today we're bringing you some of the messages you have sent us. Our loyal mailbot, Carney, is right here with us. It seems he has developed quite a, quite a card shark habit over the last week or so. He's wearing one of those green visors. Uh, or Wait, is that what poker players wear? Or is that like accountants? I may have gotten that mixed mm, up. I, I, mean, I think I've seen some card sharks wearing those things. Yeah, well, they're trying to hide their expressions, right? So they wear like a hat and sunglasses and who knows what else at the table. Mm-hmm. Do, do any poker players just full-on wear a ski mask? Uh, I think that's frowned upon. <laughs> I think it's frowned upon. Uh, but I'm sure that this this new poker habit for Carney has been inspired by the card-playing robots of Silent Running, one of our favorite films. Oh, yeah, that's right. There's some there's some great card uh, card-playing robots in that one, Huey, Dewey, and Louie. Um, those are some wonderful scenes in, in large part because they're like a little bit, they're a little bit clunky, you know, they're not, mm-hmm. um, they're not smooth, those robots or the way that they interact with humans in their environment, but in a way that felt very real, very endearing. Uh, I, I loved it. Well, that'll come back up later on. Uh, Rob, are you ready to jump right in? Should I read this message from Cody? Go for it. Okay, here is a uh, sort of correction slash clarification on the Jupiter episode, at least from Cody's perspective. This starts, hi, Joe plus Robert. I'm currently listening to part one of the Jupiter episodes, and as a recovering astronomer, I had to dash off this message. When talking about whether our solar system is unusual or abnormal as compared to other planetary systems, it is crucial to keep in mind that the detection techniques that astronomers use to find extrasolar planets preferentially biases their detections toward large planets close to their parent star. In other words, planets that tug a lot on their star or occlude its light on short periods. And uh, to expand on that a little bit, so some of the main ways we've had in the past of checking whether uh, another star has an exoplanet orbiting it is by things like the radial velocity test, which checks to see if the host star is wobbling, basically, by the gravitational pull of a large planet orbiting it, or by the, uh, yeah, as Cody alludes to here, the occlusion of its light. So like if there is a transit where a planet passes in front of a star from our perspective, we will perceive that as a brief dimming of the star as the planet passes between the star and our observation technique. Technology. Uh, and, and there are some other methods as well, but uh, th- those are some of the main ones. And you can see why it would be easier to detect planets that are larger and have certain types of uh, certain types of orbital orientations based on those sorts of methods. But uh, Cody continues. In fact, the upper limit on the orbital periods for the current detection regime is roughly half the period of a typical postdoctoral fellowship. Go figure. So it just isn't accurate to say that our solar system is unusual since we simply don't know. It may in fact be the most common kind of planetary system, but we are as yet completely incapable of detecting another one like it. Cody. So thanks for that, Cody. Uh, So I would say unless it got left out by accident somehow, I'm pretty sure in the episode we did talk about the idea that our current detection methods for exoplanets could very well be biasing our surveys of what types of planets are out there. Though I believe, if I understand correctly, Cody is putting it more strongly here, saying not just as we did that they could be biasing our picture of how common different planetary structures are, but that they almost certainly are biasing it. Fair enough. 
All right. Here's another one. This one comes to us from Joshua. Joshua writes, hi, Robert and Joe, longtime listener, first time writing, really love the show and the symbiosis you create between all the best subjects. Was listening to the Jupiter episodes and heard you both questioning how big the stone Cronus, Uranus, swallowed in place of the baby Zeus. Well, I knew I heard about it before, and sure enough, there is a historical sculpture held as being the same stone, see attached picture. Apparently, uh, apparently this is it, also known as the Omphalus Stone. It's an example of a, a beetleus or sacred stone. The mythological record says the stone was also used by Zeus to decide where the center of the world was. No surprise, he picked Delphi, and that's where he placed this stone to mark it. And yeah, indeed, you can look up uh, images of this. There's a Wikipedia article on this that has some uh, yeah, I mean, decent museum photographs of them. Um, anyway, uh, they continue. It's certainly bigger than I ever imagined a baby god would be. But I guess when you're dealing with deities, it's probably going to be a bit subjective. Thanks, guys. Keep doing what you do. Your friend, Josh. Oh, thanks, Josh. It looks kind of like a beautifully decorated giant stone bullet. Here's the question. Was it decorated before it was uh, ingested by a god, or did it, was it inscribed like this by virtue of being ingested by a god? Ah, so you're saying not carved by a human in recognition of having been vomited up by Cronus, but it was actually carved by Cronus's guts. Like when he yeah. swallows a stone, it starts making little uh, lacy patterns on the, the things inside. Yeah, why not? I mean, it, the, the, the physiology of the gods uh, has to be something spectacular. Three cheers for God Guts. Yeah. Okay, you ready for dad jokes? Uh, As as ready as anyone ever is. (laughs) Okay, this first message comes from Eden. Eden says, Dear Robert and Joe, in your recent dad jokes episode, y'all brought up the lack of a signifier or punctuation mark in written text that conveyed sarcasm. I wanted to shout through my phone that there already is an existing signifier of sarcasm in written text, and it does not ruin the joke to use it. Rules for writing sarcasm have evolved naturally on the internet, and we see them every day. In fact, often it is not punctuation so much as a lack of punctuation. Its use as a form of rhetorical speech is described here. And Eden includes a link to a Tumblr post arguing in short that within Tumblr there has evolved a linguistic convention that sentences presented without punctuation can be understood in an ironic or rhetorical manner. So an example kind of like what's used in this post would be a sentence like, why did Taco Bell give me 17 sauce packets for one taco? The sentence would feel very different depending on whether or not you actually include a question mark at the end of it. If there's a question mark at the end of it, people might be tempted to answer the question to say like, oh, uh, maybe it's because of this or, you know, they could interpret it in different ways. If you don't punctuate it at all, it's somehow kind of understood that this is just like a joking or rhetorical question and you're probably exaggerating with the number. Hmm. I'm I'm, I don't know. Yeah. I'm just kind of a a stickler for including your punctuation. I don't know. I'm. It would take a lot of convincing to uh, to get me behind the idea of just not using punctuation on a sentence, or to just or to use no capitalization, etc. Do uh, you mean you're not really familiar with this convention on the internet, or just that you don't approve of it? Oh well, both. I mean, I mean, if I was oh, okay. more if I was more accustomed to it, perhaps I'd be more into it. But like my gut reaction is, if we have to choose between sarcasm and proper punctuation, we choose punctuation, and we. <laughs> 
we erase sarcasm from our um, our culture. Okay. Um, Eden goes on. A lack of punctuation or a period where there should be a question mark or even all caps are an immediate signifier of sarcasm. Uh, this linguist on the toast can explain it better than I can. And then again, Eden links to a uh, to an article. This is an article by a linguist named Gretchen McCulloch who explains several ways that sarcasm or irony is often conveyed in written language today on the internet, uh, often by intentionally incorrect spelling, by lack of punctuation and capitalization. Uh, All these things can sometimes be used to convey sarcasm or irony. And yeah, I, I recognize these conventions. I've seen them on Twitter and places where like a where a statement in a post is denoted as ironic or sarcastic by being presented, say, like in all lowercase with no punctuation. Hmm. I mean, I can some of these tools, I guess I can get more behind the, the all caps thing. I I can understand that. And I guess I've probably used that before. Um, and and yeah, I guess even intentional misspellings have a place, especially if you're trying to sort of present a um, a specific dialect, you know, or mm-hmm. impersonating a specific individual. Um, or, um, you know, like say there's a particular celebrity you're trying to, uh, uh, to, to summon, uh, you know, an image of or to in- invoke in the writing. I think that would make sense. I think I realized one thing I do is that often if I'm talking to somebody I work with and I want to den- – I, I don't think I had ever put this together before, but I've realized – I, I often denote sarcasm or irony by including somewhere in the sentence a business buzzword that I would never actually use in a genuine manner. That, that, yeah, that, that could work for sure uh, as, a, as a signifier, something like that. Yeah. So, but I guess part of it, uh, I guess a lot of this does come down to you know, what we talked about before about how do we know someone is being uh, sarcastic? You know, there's, there's tone and there's context. And if you're if if you're using the buzzwords, are you perhaps leaning more into context a bit? I don't know. Um, yeah, I mean that would rely on the person sort of knowing me well enough to know that these are not terms that I genuinely use. Yeah, uh, so that probably wouldn't work for like a an audience that didn't know who I was. Uh, but so yeah, I guess that that would be a context thing. I think the like denoting sarcasm or irony or rhetorical speech by doing say all lowercase with no punctuation that does seem to be an attempt to use a written version of tone. It's kind of like when you use the silly voice to say something. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I applaud people out, out there in the field trying to, to figure this out, <laughs> even if uh, even though some of these tools are maybe not for me. Uh, you know, per- perhaps they work, and if they make communication better in these, uh, these formats, then, uh, you know, I guess it's a win-win. Anyway, Eden concludes, My point is that we will never have something as straightforward as a single mark to convey sarcasm because, as you pointed out in the episode, such an obvious pronouncement might spoil the joke, but we do have unofficial linguistic rules about how we express sarcasm through text. Love the show, Eden. Well, that's all good. Thanks for for writing in and sharing this. Yeah, much of this is a, a world I'm not familiar with. All right, here's one from Carlos. 
Hey there, just wanted to add to your dad joke stories. My dad is from Argentina, and often when I was a kid, he would try to translate jokes from Spanish. Almost every time, my dad would arrive at the punchline only to realize that the joke didn't translate. Also, I don't know if this is just me, but I have noticed that curse words in other languages never have the same kick that they do in one's native language. Slang from Argentina, based in how my dad has explained it to me, can be pretty foul. As such, my dad often told dirty jokes or jokes that hinged on bad words in polite company, <laughs> teachers, pastors, etc. Uh, so not only did they usually fall flat, they often were on the vulnerable side. Embarrassing back then, hilarious now. Thanks for everything, Carlos. Nothing better than telling dirty jokes to the pastor. (laughs) All right, this next message comes to us from Jim in New Jersey about uh, part one of our episodes on post-biological intelligence. Jim says, Robert and Joe, in your Machine Lords of Barnard 68 part one, Joe was reading from Susan Schneider's AI comments comparing silicon versus organic processing, and she mentioned seven manageable chunks being the limitation of a human brain. You mentioned Miller, but didn't seem to know the reference. Yeah, she referred to Miller as the citation for that seven chunks claim, but we talked about how we didn't follow up on that. Well, Jim has the explanation here. Uh, Jim writes, she's referring to George Miller's cognitive psychological paper, The Magic Number 7 Plus or Minus 2. It's referring to short-term memory. Humans can manage about seven things in their short-term memory, but it varies per individual by plus or minus two. The things we can manage are not just numbers, letters, or words. Each slot can manage a single chunk. That is, it can be a composite idea with several parts, but we still consider it a whole. I've heard that one of the original tests involved showing chess piece configurations to chess novices and masters. They had a fixed amount of time, let's say 60 seconds, to examine the board, and they were tasked with reconstructing it. The chess masters did much better than the novices, but then instead of actual chess game configurations, both sets of volunteers were shown random chess piece configurations, and the novices and masters got about the same number of pieces correct. In the chess game portion of the test, a cluster of pieces in the corner would appear as six or seven pieces and require almost all of the short-term memory slots for the novice. However, the chess master would recognize them as a castling position, and this castling chunk would would only require one short-term memory slot. Likewise, other familiar chess piece configurations would chunk for the chess master. The chess master doesn't have more memory. The chess master has additional information about the game to chunk it more efficiently than the novice. Random configurations contained no chunks, so the master could only remember seven pieces, which was the same as the novice. And this makes sense to me because if you have something that's sort of uh, already understood as a whole and, and stored in your memory in a way, you you could store it uh, much more efficiently. Like you could probably remember seven whole lines from movies that you've watched a million times and you've got the lines already memorized, but you couldn't remember as easily uh, nearly as much of the dialogue of a film that you were unfamiliar with and being exposed to for the first time. You could remember, oh, it was this line from that film, and that's one piece of information in your brain. Yeah. Anyway, Jim goes on, Chunking exists in most skills and hobbies. If a concept has its own name, it's probably a chunk. Referring back to Susan Schneider, a human's short-term memory has seven slots. A computer does not have this limitation. 
Jim in New Jersey. Uh, well, thanks, Jim. That that fills in something very relevant. Yeah, and, and it also kind of makes spell slots in Dungeons and Dragons uh, less, um, you know, less of an abstract concept, right? I mean, it's just like, yeah, you only have so many slots, you can only have mm-hmm. so many spells prepared. But each spell is one chunk if you know it well enough. Yeah. All right, and then we got uh, one message about a spoon. It's not very long. It is just from a listener who signed their email, quote, just a signature here. So I hope that works. Uh, and uh, the, the message is, saw this, and it reminded me of your discussion about the spork. I think actually what you're talking about is our, uh, our refusal to discuss the spork. Uh, but this listener says, you'll enjoy the foon, and then attaches a picture. One is a spork, so it's the bowl of a spoon with some tines at the end. The foon is a fork in which each of the tines ends in a tiny spoon bowl. Yeah, it's it's pretty weird looking. Even the spork looks weird because it looks like it was perhaps it's it's, it's as if it's a, a like a fine silver spork, uh-huh. which sure I guess exists. probably it probably exists. But this looks like it was uh, you know perhaps created in Photoshop. Rob, I can tell you're about to lash out in anger. Let's let's move on to something else. Okay. Quickly. <laughs> All right, this one uh, comes to us from Brad, um, and it's a response to our episode, uh, Gold Medal of the Sun. Dear Robert and Joe, I am writing about your episode on gold. I don't believe you mentioned one of gold's most interesting properties. It's heat shielding prowess. Approximately 0.8 ounces, 16 grams of gold foil, is used in the engine bay of each McLaren F1 because it protects the carbon fiber body and the, um, the monocue frame and chassis from heat, uh, the heat of the engine. Are we talking about a car here, by the way? Yeah, I think this is like a. Okay. Uh, it's like a, a a racing car of some kind, very very okay. fast, high performance car. Yeah, because uh, I, w- I was thinking of like a like a like a fighter plane. It's like I don't I don't recognize McLaren as a as a as a company that makes fighter jets. So um, <laughs> I don't. Uh, so I'm not familiar with this word, monocoque or mono monocoque, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> whatever that is. Yeah. Uh, Anyway, they continue. This was a choice by Gordon Murray, the chief engineer of the car. The gold foil lined engine bay is one of two distinct design features of this car. The other big design distinction is the three seats. Here's a link to the Wikipedia article, uh, which they include for us. Um, I've been listening on and off for a couple of years, but I have started listening frequently since I've been working from home. Keep up the great work, especially with the Weird House Cinema series. Regards, Brad. Thanks, Brad. All right, I am looking at the, uh, oh, yep, that's a pretty fancy-looking car. Um, Let's see it. The, yeah, it's uh, looks <laughs> oh, like okay. something uh, This is this an official drive. Bond villain car. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe you have more perspective on this. I've got a question here. Is there a point at which a car starts looking so cool that it goes over the line and it's not cool and instead is kind of dorky? Um, Maybe. I mean, I don't know. You Occasionally, you know, I guess I see a lot of normal looking cars rolling around uh, the neighborhood, you know, that you usually don't pay much attention to them. And occasionally, like even things like, uh, at least to my eyes, even when there's like a Tesla there, I have to really look at it to realize it's a Tesla. Mm-hmm. Um, where and, until I'm finally like, whoa, this dude's dropping off his kids at school in a Tesla. What's that about? Um, but um, I guess occasionally you do see a car that is like so fancy or so antique that it is just eye uh, eye grabbing. Um, I don't know at what extent it becomes uncool. I'm, I guess it just depends on on how judgmental you are about how people, uh, you know, 
um, how, how, how people spend their money and, you know, what they choose to drive around in. Um, I guess it's possible, but it would be very, very subjective. Except for the headlights, I'm not sure I would be able to tell which end of this car is the front. Yeah. I don't know. It's kind of, I imagine, I'm not a car person, so I don't really get excited about cars and all. But yeah, same I think one area I might be able to compare it to would be like my my interest in things like tanks and, and, and uh, military aircraft, mm-hmm. which... On, on one level, I can definitely look at a bomber or a tank and be like, wow, that's a really cool looking airplane. It's a neat design. And on the other hand, I'm like, that is OK. That's that's a, a weapon of war that probably or in many cases definitely caused a lot of death, destruction and misery and pain. Um, but on some level, you kind of separate the two when you're considering just pieces of technology like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and granted, if you're talking about like a Lamborghini or something, it probably didn't lead to, uh, you know, the same level of of death and misery that, uh, you know, like an M1 tank did. Uh, But still, you kind of, there are probably different ways that we engage in thinking about it. So we might be able to look at a car and be like, oh, that's a really cool car without thinking, hmm, is that a wise use of one's money? Is that appropriate to drive on these streets? So what does that say about uh, inequality in our our world or our nation, (laughs) that sort of thing? Uh, So I don't know. Not to lay all that on this one particular car. <laughs> no, no. It's a, it's, it's a cool-looking car, I, I, I will admit. If I saw it driving down the street, I would say, wow, that's a cool car. I'd I, I jump right in front of it. <laughs> it would be an honor yeah. to be run over by this car. Uh, something yeah. I, I really get excited about, I live close to railroad tracks, and uh, I think one of my favorite things in the world are maintenance vehicles on railroad tracks. Oh, yeah. Uh, I get really excited about those. I point them out to my family, and mostly they don't care. But, um, but uh, yeah, I, if there's some sort of strange vehicle that's cleaning the tracks or enabling uh, the maintenance of the tracks or even just a truck on the tracks, you know, mm-hmm. uh, that, I, that, that stuff, that's something I really get excited about. So if, I imagine there are people who get that level of excited about sports cars and all, and I can, I can acknowledge that. I'm right there with you. I think I have much more enthusiasm about rail-based vehicles. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I still occasionally, unfortunately, I don't have them every night, but I have semi-recurring dreams about getting to ride special train cars on, like, the subway or our local rail system here in Atlanta, though it's usually kind of like a an unreal uh, subway system I'm engaging in, but, like, a mm-hmm. chance where, oh, I get to ride this, like, open vehicle that's traveling through the subway tunnels or some sort oh, of cool. uh, bizarre... Say, and it, it, like, it occurs... With some regular uh, frequency in my, my dreams, I don't always remember it all that well. But yeah, something about strange train cars, I'm I'm just really drawn to. I thought you were going to say like a fancy, uh, you know, uh, Orient Express style uh, 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 dining car on Marta. Oh wow, well, I would be up for that as well. Yeah, yeah. One of my favorite museums. Uh, there are so many great museums in New York, but the um, the Public Transit Rail Museum is so great because it's an actual subway station, and it's filled with just different historical train cars, and you can mm-hmm. just walk through them and uh, explore. It's it's wonderful. Oh, that sounds cool. Maybe one day, huh? Yeah, yeah. One day I'll get back up there. All 
right. This next message is about the Fata Morgana episode. This comes from Alexander. Alexander says, hello, Robert and Joe. Hope you guys are safe and well. I've been a fan of the podcast for some years now. And as someone who listens mostly to comedy shows, your weekly discussions give me real food for thought. I love the informal and really interesting tone of the conversations and the themes of the episodes. So when hearing the episode about the Fata Morgana, I couldn't help but think of a minor character of the anime Naruto. And as you guys ask for representations of the Shin in media, here you go. Also, English is not my first language, so bear with me. Uh, No worries at all, Alexander. Rob, what's a quick refresher on the Shin? Oh, a a giant clam that lives in the deep and belches up uh, a column of uh, of ectoplasm that forms like fairy castles and cities in the sky uh, on the the horizon in the, um, in the, the Sea of Japan. Yeah, amazing. Like giant clam monsters burping up bubbles that turn into visions. Yeah, and if you and yeah, you don't want to go following it because it's not really there. You can't really live there. You can't really explore it. Um, you know, it's it's fairy fire that'll lead you to your doom. Excellent summary. The message continues. So, Naruto is a pretty famous anime that tells the story of Naruto Uzumaki, a young ninja who seeks recognition from his peers and dreams of becoming. The, uh, the Hokage, I think, the leader of his village, while dealing with the mythical spirit of the Kyubi, a nine-tailed fox sealed in his body. The Shin appears during the Fourth Shinobi World War arc, one of the final ones. The creature is a pretty straightforward representation of the Chinese myth and also has the ability to create mirages and illusions. The giant clam appears as a personal summon of the second uh, Mizukage, the leader of the hidden village of the Mist, resurrected to fight in the Ninja World War. It's capable of producing a mist that creates a deceptive mirage that renders observers unable to locate the position of the summoner or the clam itself. In my opinion, it was a very interesting use of the Chinese myth of the Shen. I'm also attaching a link of the clam scene with the English sub so you guys can better understand the role of the creature in the anime. Um, unfortunately, when I clicked on it, the video was unavailable. Uh, so I think oh, <laughs> it has oh, already been oh. snatched by the uh, the piracy bots. Oh, those bots. They Someday they'll pay. Back in Alexander's message, P.S. I would also love to make a suggestion for the future. It would be really cool to hear an episode about the Amazon Pink River Dolphin. I'm from Brazil, and this aquatical mammal is an, an extremely interesting animal with a rich mythical background and repercussions on the sociology or anthropology of indigenous groups. Thank you for your great podcast. Keep up the good work. Smiley face emoji. Which, for some reason, when I copy and paste, turns into a capital J. I don't know what to do oh, about huh. that. Let's see. For starters, um, I have not seen this anime in question. Uh, and, and, of course, wasn't able to get that link to work. Uh, but I am vaguely aware that it exists. So, mm-hmm. I don't know. Maybe I'll have to check it out. I've been enjoying a lot of high-quality animation these days. Oh, and then secondly, Pink River Dolphin. Yeah, I would love to do something on Pink River Dolphins. Uh, 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 dolphins, in general, are just a fascinating topic. Um, in a recent listener mail, we list, we heard we asked everyone. It's like, hey, what's some relaxing music you, you dig? We heard from a couple of people. I'm not going to read their complete uh, emails, but I would just want to mention some of the the music that they uh, they recommended. Uh, William, responding on the discussion module, uh, said that they too were fans of Biosphere. Uh, that we brought up, uh, but also mention um, another artist that I dig, uh, Ulrich Schnauss. 
as well as uh, an artist by the name of William Basinski, who I think I've listened to a little bit before. I think they're known for these, uh, like using degenerating tapes um, mm. to create uh, interesting soundscapes. Oh, that's interesting. One of my favorite things, actually, that that the internet is good for is recordings <laughs> of dying sound-playing chips that are implanted in greeting cards that play music. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there are a lot of really good ones. There, There's one that I used to listen to all the time that was the Happy Birthday song, but it was, of course, uh, not able to quite produce the, the clarity and crispness and power that it once did <laughs> when it was first purchased. So it, it rendered this absolute dirge of death for your birthday. Another one that I think I shared with you not too long ago yes, was playing did. the Baja Men's Who Let the Dogs Out. But as the machine spiraled down to its doom, the, the Who Let the Dogs Out chorus became increasingly forlorn (laughs) yeah yeah that was a good one for sure um let's see they um uh, speaking of which this is not really decayed um audio loops or anything but i'm also a big fan of steve reich's music for 18 musicians if anyone out there uh, is looking for something to try out uh but william also mentions uh billow observatory that i'm not familiar with and also brings up of course brian eno uh especially brian eno's work with robert fripp love brian eno Yes, yeah, absolutely. In fact, we heard from another listener by the name of Jari who wanted to write in just about Eno. Um, They they, they basically go on at length here about how great Eno's work is and list list some stuff uh, to to check out. Uh, I'm I'm not going to go into all of it here, but uh, they do pinpoint some of the big ones like uh, music for airports. Uh, atmospheres and soundtracks. Uh, I'm a big fan, personally, of uh, what music music for films that has a uh, or whatever it was called, where it's like little bits of of soundtrack score for non-existent films that he put together. I'm pretty sure we've talked on the show before about how we both agreed that music for airports should actually be played in airports instead of yeah. whatever god awful racket that they're pumping out of like the TVs they've got up in there. If you run an airport, please don't have tvs running in the terminal areas that is just a a recipe for incredible stress and misery yeah i don't know why i don't know why music for airports was ignored by airports uh they also mention uh eno's work with cluster we've talked about i know that you're you're a fan of cluster as well totally um He's worked. He worked on uh, Ambient Two, the the Plateau of Mirror. Uh, worked on that with Harold Budd, who's another big name in ambient sound. Um, yeah, there's just there's just so much uh, so much great stuff that uh, that Eno's put out over the years, and still is putting out great ambient material. Wait, I apologize if I missed it. Did Did you already mention uh, uh, Bowie's Eno collaboration period? No, no. Uh, but that's that's amazing stuff as well. Does that include uh, the Bowie album Low? Ooh, I'm not. I don't know the answer to that. Oh wait, Seth has chimed in. Seth has chimed in. Yes, it does. Low is one of my favorite David Bowie albums. It's not. Uh, it's not as fun as some of his other albums. It, it's very uh, dark, and it it has the feeling of looking at the 20th century from a hermetically sealed chamber through a curved piece of glass. But it is. Uh, <laughs> it is a a dark and beautiful album, and a lot of the electronic and synthesizer work. I think, especially on the second half of the album, uh, feels very very like dark. You know. Yeah. Uh, one of the things about Eno, of course, is when I think of Eno, I do think of his ambient work, but uh, he, he did a lot of material. He put out a lot of material. Uh, if you want, if anyone out there wants to hear like the funkier side of Eno, mm-hmm. um, 
DJ Food put out a wonderful mix uh, 11 years ago now whew, uh, titled More Volts, The Funky Eno. If you look it up, you can still find it. Uh, DJ Food has it hosted on uh, SoundCloud. And uh, I haven't listened to it in a little bit, but I remember it being a lot of fun. Uh, just a lot of, of cool, funky beats from Brian Eno, working with various people uh, like uh, David Byrne um, uh, and, uh, and so forth. Yeah. But also very versatile because, yes, there there is that funky side. But then music for airports is just the most calming thing I have ever heard. I mean, is is there any series of sounds that better puts the brain at, at peace? Yeah. Yeah. How mad can you be when you're listening to music for airports? Yeah. Just kind of like, okay, I miss my connection. You know, it's, <laughs> it's going to be all right. All right, looks like we have some Weird House Cinema uh, email as well here, Joe. That's right. So this first message comes from Jim. Jim says, hey, Robert and Joe, you mentioned on the listener mail that sometime you should do a Ken Russell film on Weird House Cinema. Uh, There are many great ones from Ken Russell, but my recommendation is Lair of the White Worm, 1998. I I don't mm-hmm. think you're right about that year, Jim. I'm I'm pretty sure that is wrong, but I, I will be corrected if I'm wrong about that. Rob, maybe you can look it up while I'm reading this. It's adapted from a novel by Bram Stoker and has several well-known stars, Hugh Grant, Peter Capaldi, Catherine Oxenberg. It's about a British vampiric snake cult. It's fun, funny, sexy, lightly scary. I think it might be available on Tubi right now if you have that <laughs> app. Thanks for all your work. Jim and Jim, yes, you you know our strike zone. I love this movie. Definitely one that I've been planning to feature at some point. Uh, Lair of the White Worm. Uh, in fact, I thought I'd mentioned it on a recent Weird House Cinema because we were talking about a blasphemous like crucifixion scenes in movies, yeah. and Lair of the White Worm has a really good like uh, snake demon blasphemous crucifixion vision. Yeah, and I looked it up. It's a 1988 film, so close. Okay, one decade off. Yeah, it's been a while since I've seen it, but I remember it being a lot of fun. It has a, yeah, it's a, uh, sexy and weird and has a really cool worm puppet in it. Yeah, just glorious. Absolutely great. All right, here's a bit of email it comes to us from Emily. Hi, Robert and Joe. Let me start off by saying I've been loving the steady stream of Stuff to Blow Your Mind content coming through my podcatcher, especially Weird House Cinema. Y'all killing the game. Please continue. Anyway, I'm writing with a suggestion for Weird House. I feel like you guys have brought it up before, but I don't remember the context. So maybe this is one of your two-watch lists. This is on your two-watch list already. 1972's Silent Running, directed by Douglas Trumbull, has been on my personal to-watch list since high school, and my husband and I are just getting around to watching it recently. I'd love to get you guys' take on it. My favorite thing about the experience of watching 50-year-old sci-fi movies is sitting with that feeling uh, with your disbelief can't quite stay suspended as a modern watcher because the film depicts technology as basically, quote, magic dressed in greevels and blinking lights, <laughs> um, hand-waving away exactly how the machine does what it's shown doing. Like the robots being advanced enough to understand natural speech while also running on basically punch card programs, uh, which are themselves sophisticated enough to enable said robots to perform surgery and play poker. I don't know if general audiences in the 1970s would have felt that that same challenge to the suspension of disbelief, or if I just learned too much ding-dang science from the wealth of accessible science content available in this day and age, including, in no small part, this very podcast. Anyway, uh, keep up the great work and stay safe out there. Looking forward to the next batch of podcasts. Regards, Emily. 
I think the main takeaway from silent running is just surgery isn't that hard. You know, basically anybody <laughs> could do it. Yeah, with the right punch card. <laughs> uh, but no, Emily, you're in luck. We did a whole episode about silent running sometime in 2019, I believe. Yeah, June 8th, 2019, just simply titled Silent Running. Uh, it's one of the episodes that we did, a series of episodes that we did that were ultimately kind of a precursor to Weird House Cinema. We were like, what do we need to do to get away with talking about weird movies on this podcast? And, you know, we realized, well, certain types of movies lent themselves well to that kind of discussion because like 2001 A Space Odyssey, Silent Running, these are films with a lot of science in them to discuss, you know, whether the science works right or is presented in a way that makes sense, et cetera. That's all part of the discussion. Yeah. But obviously things have evolved since then. You know, if we're going to be putting out five episodes a week, at least one of them, we're just going to talk about movies. Yeah. <laughs> but indeed, Silent Running, great film. Uh, I, I, I love it. I'll always love it. And I, I recommend it to anybody out there who, who wants to, uh, you know, seek out a, a weird cool, well-acted um, uh, piece of, uh, of sci-fi cinematic history. A great soundtrack, too. I love the Joan Baez tracks. All right. Uh, well, it looks like our mailbot is uh, shutting down, so we need to go ahead and shut down this episode as well. But we thank everybody for writing in. We didn't get to get to everything, but, you know, we're, we'll try and get to it next week. Um, even if we don't read your mail on listener mail, we still read it when it comes in. So keep it coming. Your your your, your comments, your thoughts, your corrections, your ideas for the future, uh, thoughts on Stuff to Blow Your Mind episodes, thoughts on Weird House Cinema episodes, thoughts on Artifact episodes, etc. cetera. Uh, we just want to hear from y'all. Absolutely. Keep it coming. You, you know, actually, I, I thought when we switched to doing episodes once a week that that would mean we we ended up having time to read all listener mail. It did not work out that way. I feel like we still don't even get to half of it. So uh, apologies if your message has not been read. Please don't take it personally. Uh, but we, we love all the email we get. We really do. That's right. Uh, in the meantime, if you want to listen to other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind listener mail, it tends to publish on Mondays. I think that's its standard date of publication. Uh, Wednesdays, we'll do an artifact unless we need to preempt it. Uh, Tuesdays and Thursdays are our core Stuff to Blow Your Mind episodes. Friday is Weird House Cinema, and then we have a Vault episode over the weekend. That's right. Hook your ears up, download it all, listen, do as we command you. But anyway, uh, huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us to potentially have a piece of uh, email featured on a future listener mail episode, to provide feedback to uh, this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hi, you can always email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts are wherever you listen to your favorite shows.